Welcome to the Corey Mila podcast, exploring stories and ideas about conflict, peace, theology, and art. Hello, my name is Padraig Tuma, and you're listening to the Corey Mila podcast. With me today is Peter Coleman. Peter is Professor of Psychology and Education at Columbia University in New York City in the United States. And he's an expert on constructive conflict resolution and intractable conflict as well, and sustaining peace. He is widely published. Um, His most recent book, The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization, was released by Columbia University Press in 2021. And in collaboration with the nonprofit organization Starts With Us, Peter has recently created the Polarization Detox Challenge, which aims to empower individuals to shape new habits and norms for political tolerance and courageous compassion. We'll be talking about that as we um, go on with the interview. So, Peter, you're very, very welcome to the Corey Miller podcast. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to be with you. And although I have to say, whenever I'm introduced as an expert, I think of my siblings reaction or my children's <laughs> reaction or the, those that you know live with me snickering in the background but yeah, we're, uh, yes we're, inter- thank you. we're interviewing them later on so we'll get there <laughs> <Very good. laughs> um you know so much of your life has been around the psychology of conflict and the psychology of paying attention to um how it is that in public life whether in be- between private individuals or people who are in kind of political life um, or voting life how it is that conflict can be addressed. And I'm curious, can you look at any friendships or connections or experiences as a child that you think prepared you for the work that you do now? Yeah, I think there are layers of that. Um, you know, I was born in a somewhat tumultuous family. I had a, a had an older brother who was a seminarian who was always held up to me. He was a lovely person. He was very smart. He was very kind of peaceful in my view of him. And and so as a child, he he was about t- about 13 years older than I, uh, and so he was an important figure. Our family had struggles. There was you know alcoholism, and we had to move a couple of times because of violent threats against our family. And so, so you know we definitely grew. I grew up in that kind of you know microcosm space of turmoil, and I grew up in Chicago in the 60s. Um, we we fled there or left there in 1970. Um, But the city of Chicago in the 1960s was the epicenter of a lot of political unrest. And Martin Luther King was there for a time, you know, waging a campaign of nonviolent resistance. And then there were protests. And and my siblings who were, uh, my older siblings, 10 and 13 years older than I, were plugged into that and involved in that. So I was raised in a space that some would call macro worry. I was aware, mm. even as a child, of the circumstances and the instability of that, um, and uh, but also the sort of, you know, the promise of reform and, and protest. And so definitely those experiences, both the kind of personal experiences of the challenges we faced, but also the political context that I happen to be situated in, I'm really, I think, you know, ultimately it informed me and affected my choices later on in terms of my profession. Hmm. Um, there was also desegregation that was happening um, while you were in school. Yeah, I was. That's right. I was at one of the first uh, uh, desegregated. I was at went to a, a Catholic school in Chicago, and it was one of the first desegregated schools in terms of busing in 
um, you know, students of color into our community, which, you know, to me was kind of fascinating and lovely. I was a big fan of, of, of West Side Story and, and, you know, and so to have, you know, these new kids come on who were, frankly, some of them so good at marbles. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Were you seven? Uh, I yeah well I was it's it's probably started in first grade maybe yeah just out of kindergarten so yeah I would be six or seven <laughs> when that first started um, and you know again I've made friends and they were I thought kind of interesting and compelling and maybe more interesting than my peers you know that were there so um, you know so again I wasn't particularly aware of the political ramifications of it you know I, I think the community I was in was pretty open to that there weren't protests against this um but it was definitely uh you know a, a big experience as a young child in a school to have you know basically the complexion of your school change radically hmm. but again I, I think that they this particular school happened to do it fairly well I think so to me it was a, a kind of blessing. Yeah. I know that in some of your years in New York, after you'd been studying psychology or maybe while you were, you worked with um, you worked in like a social work setting. Um, and then you went from that more into the, the science of things and the big picture dynamics of conflict. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, the, the inroad that you had into the human condition and and working mm -hmm. in somewhat of a social work context and then moving from that into the, the larger picture dynamic of examining the trends and looking at the science and seeing what works. Sure, I'm happy to do that. Um, so I moved to New York from Iowa. I never lived in, I'd never been to New York, but I moved here right at, out of college. I had gone to the University of Iowa and uh, I came here to be an actor and I was studied at an acting um, school for a year. And then I got a job on television. I was doing acting for the first few years of my life here. Uh, at some point I was, I went to Florida to teach acting. And while there, uh, my roommates sort of encouraged me to start to work with um, in a psychiatric hospital with adolescents, they were, mm -hmm. you know, sort of 12 to 28 year old, um, young people that either were dealing with drug problems or psychiatric problems. And so I, I volunteered while I was there. I worked part-time while I was down there. And then when I came back to New York, I started to do that as well. And the hospital that I worked at in New York city was, uh, in Manhattan. Um, and it was called the Regent hospital and, and part of the population, again, I was working with adolescents. But it was a violent population uh, and increasingly so while I was there, there were more and more young people brought in basically to try to, you know, largely reduce their sentences. They had been, you know, accused of various crimes, you know, drug possession, drug, you know, selling of drugs, violent crimes, some even murder. Um, and so there were the community was inclined to violence uh and so i think i in that space just you know tried to figure out through instinct how to relate to these kids how to build relationships with them right away um and then i because of that you know when a new young person would come on the unit i would just sort of sit down and say you know hey peter i wasn't that much older than them at this mm. point i was probably 20 late 20s mm. um and some of them were almost that themselves so I was a kind of peer in that way. And I would 
you know, talk to them and listen to them and, and try to hear them and, and in doing so, you know, create something of a connection. And so in the times when violence would spike on the unit, somebody would, you know, what they call act out, would, you know, break something or attack somebody or, you know, um, and sometimes those would really escalate where people, there's some of these, uh, usually young men would barricade themselves into a room and threaten worse violence and threaten the staff. And, you know, because it was a small hospital, they would call in police SWAT teams. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my inclination was to kind of knock on the door and say, Dan, it's Peter, any chance you and I can talk because it's getting very tense out here and the SWAT team is on their way. And if possible, it'd be great if you and I could just, you know, avoid that. <clears throat> and sometimes they would open the door, you know, kind of regretfully, they wanted to fight, they wanted to act out, but they would open the door. And, and, and again, I had no training in this. I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. I was in some ways, it was foolish, but I felt like I had a relationship with these, you know, young people, I knew what would happen if the police came in and what that would lead, you know, what the path that would lead them down. So I did everything I could to sort of just connect with them uh, beforehand and then, you know, try to, you know, work, leverage our relationship really to bring things down. Um, yeah. And so I was doing more and more of that. But as I said, I had no idea what I was doing, frankly. And so I started to read. I read some work by Carl Rogers, who had been at Teachers College at Columbia. Uh, and so I sort of followed up there. And then in my explorations at Columbia, found a man named Morton Deutsch, who was an eminent theorist in conflict resolution and peace processes and justice. And he had this, you know, extraordinary uh, career. He had just retired, but was still at Columbia, had just founded a center up there. Mm. So, uh, you know, so basically I met him. I started to learn about the work that he did and the center did. And I got became very involved. I went there for a master's degree. I then stayed on for my PhD and today direct that center. So mm. it was a kind of circuitous path, mm. randomness that took place. Uh, but meeting more, I have to say, when I met more George, when I joined this program, my intention was to to do consulting work or, or, you know, do work on the streets, work with violence, work with young people, understand it better, but find some strategies. But he was a big advocate of the power of ideas. Mm. I really believe that if you can identify some critical ideas and then use science to refine the you know applicability of those ideas when, when they're useful, um, that you can change the world. And he had, in fact, really done that. He'd lived that. He, his work was so important, you know, everywhere from schools to, you know, organizations, you know, corporations and the United Nations, right? Mm -hmm. It had a big influence on international peace and peacemakers. So he had really done that through his work as a scientist. And so I became really enamored with that idea and with the power of big ideas combined with science to have an impact. Yeah, I know that you've had um, a, a lab, a laboratory called the Difficult Conversations Capture Lab, and yeah. you, you've often, am I right in that, that you bring people from multiple, multiple disciplines together, maths and astrophysics, um, together with people in conflict resolution? What, what's yeah. the aim in, in such a, what's the aim of such a laboratory? Like, what are you, what are you, what are you hoping to see happen? And then what are you learning from it? Like, what theories are you coming out with and ideas, as you mentioned? 
Yeah. So the, the, the background is that, you know, with by Mord and others, I was trained as a, an experimental social psychologist and mm -hmm. what most, well, many scientists do is they sort of zoom in on a particular piece of a problem. So I was studying things like the toxic emotion of humiliation and the effect mm -hmm. that has in perpetuating conflict or identity formation or something called ripeness, which is what are the conditions under which people that are warring will actually come together and negotiate and take a different path. So I was studying all these pieces of these, you know, difficult problems. Um, but the more and more, more I got interested in what we'd call intractable conflicts, long-term protracted, seemingly impossible conflicts to solve, like in the Middle East or, you know, at the time, certainly Northern Ireland, um, I was um, awakened by the fact that the the micro studies we were doing as important as they are and as much insight as they can offer were insufficient to the problem mm -hmm. because these problems are so complex and multi-layered and generational and there's so many things that are interacting that uh, a typical scientific approach of taking a psychological approach and uh, on a variable or <laughs> two was insufficient so yeah so I started to really hunger to have a better understanding of what is going on and how do these things, how, why do these things become so impossible to understand or to address? Um, and so I started to read systems thinking kind of work, and I read the work of John Paul Lederach and others that were using systems metaphors, but I felt frustrated that they were mostly metaphors. They were saying, yes, these are complicated problems, a lot of things happening, but it, it was kind of a dead end in terms of empirical science until I read some work by a man named Robin Velliker and uh, a colleague of his, Andrzej Novak, who was a Polish social psychologist, and um, Robin is um, uh, at Florida Atlantic University. And they were doing work that was really informed by sort of physics and hard sciences. And their approach to thinking about, you know, problems was to understand them as complex systems that settle into strong patterns that start to resist change. And they would take those ideas and develop, you know, kind of robust theory and then do empirical studies that would challenge that. And then they started to try to connect that to practice and what to do about changing these kinds of difficult problems, what we call wicked problems. <laughs> uh, so I reached out to them and said, any chance you want to work on world peace? <laughs> and they said, because, you know, they hadn't really ventured into this domain before. And they said, absolutely. And mm -hmm. so we kind of got together. And, and this is a long-winded response to how did we get develop the difficult conversation lab. But um, so we, we, we got some funding. We spent, uh, we put together this kind of multidisciplinary team. Uh, there was an astrophysicist, Larry Leibovich, and there were um, industrial psychologists and anthropologists, you know, uh, um, Andrea Bartoli, who is a world-class peacemaker and anthropologist. And so we put together this great team of, you know, smart, well-intentioned people. And it was a multidisciplinary team. And the idea was, you know, you can't understand something like intractability over a hundred years through just psychological lens or political lens or anthropological cultural lens. You have to really sort of have some sense of the gestalt, the whole, like how does yeah. this whole thing settle into these patterns and you need to eventually once you have a theory so we've developed some theoretical models based on what we call attractors and physics which are patterns that draw us in and sort of trap us um but we needed data yeah we needed to then move into the science and actually track 
the dynamics of conflict as they unfold over time and as they settle into these patterns. So we built what we call now the Difficult Conversations Lab, and that was done primarily with my colleague at the time was a student, Katerina Kugler from Munich, brilliant student who came to do her PhD um, at the center. And we said, okay, let's build a lab where we can actually capture the ongoing dynamics of two people in trapped in a kind of moral conflict mm -hmm. and study the conditions under which those conversations go well or go poorly. And that began a you know decades long mm -hmm. uh, paradigm of research. But basically it allowed us to collect the kind of data of real conflicts over time that could where we could start to test our assumptions and test our model our theory and our hypotheses because otherwise you just have you know another sort of set of ideas that are kind of informed by another discipline but you don't really have evidence of it yeah we needed both and that's why we built the lab what's the response to people you know a people who are in conflict in in being in being analyzed for data that would be you know considered then to see if there's any findings and b conflict practitioners as in you know peace workers who might be i'm curious as to whether what the resistance yeah. from peace workers to a more empirical approach to studying peace might be or or is there do people find it supportive or yeah what are the dynamics in those two relationships yeah yeah good question so um so for the participants, again, you know, we are, we have a lab where we study, you know, and again, just to be clear, when you do research like this at a university, you have to be very careful to protect the subject. So the yeah, idea that yeah. you would actually bring in actually, con you know, conflicting parties over an intense long-term conflict like Israelis and Palestinians into a lab, it's oftentimes a taboo now. And yeah. we used to be able to get away with that, but now... It's they really protect the subjects or they protect the participants. So we basically had to find a way to do it that was real enough, but not so heated and so contentious that the potential of violence or you know real genuine harm was there. So we our paradigm is that we measure people on divisive issues. We find people that have strong preferences that are opposing, mm -hmm. and then we match them to come in. So these are not relationships like ongoing relationships yeah. these are people that oftentimes don't know each other but you know discover that they're differ they differ on you know pro-life or pro-choice or on trump or anti-trump or something that they're passionate about and then we study those conditions so yeah. it's a real conflict morally between two people but you know it's in some ways it's 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 not real life it's yeah. not ongoing relationships so so, you know, again, it's so, so relatively uh, easy to walk away from afterwards because they're unlikely to see each other again unless they come back. Yeah, to the lab. Okay. easier. Absolutely. Yeah. And we have all kinds of safeguards in place. If things get really ugly, we shut the conversation down. We debrief. We have resources to you know help people if they really get triggered or get outraged. So, uh, you know, it's, it, you have to sort of be careful to do this kind of research. But it seemed to us so critically important to have some sense of real conflict in these in this lab and not just you know okay pretend you're a palestinian and pretend yeah, you're yeah, an israeli yeah. and, you know which so much of research is it's yeah. simulations or games yeah. or and, and again there's there's you know value to that but but for these purposes particularly studying intractability we needed to be real enough for people that we would see these patterns so yeah so that kind of i, I think answers to some degree the relationship with the 
people mm-hmm. there you know and i have to say you know there's often a misunderstanding i've had colleagues contact me and say okay we want to bring in you know a divided community into your lab and see you solve it and i'll say no we don't do that <laughs> you know we are a research lab yeah we study the conditions where things go well or go poorly in order to generate insights that then can potentially be used by practitioners but we're not a magic bullet place that you yeah. can bring anybody in and we'll solve it so sure. there's always often that mis mis uh, communication you're listening to the Coromela Podcast. My name is Padraigo Tuma, and with me today is Dr. Peter Coleman, Professor of Conflict and Cooperation and Peace Studies at Columbia University, particularly looking into the conditions for uh, deepening cooperation and engagement. Peter, what would you say are some of the reasons why um, why peace dialogue, if you want to call it that, and maybe you'd want to amend that title I'm giving it, what do you say some of the reasons why it might fail from the findings that you have over the years of research? And what are some of the conditions that you think, well, these might help? Right. So um, so I guess we, you know, part of it is we have to just define terms uh, in my world um people talk about dialogue but what they really mean is debate Mm. that it's really about debating a political issue and debate is a particular form of communication that certainly in the u.s we're highly socialized into it is a game to win right when you debate with others you listen carefully to the flaws in their arguments so you can weaponize them and get points Mm. (laughs) and ultimately it's about winning the debate and dialogue my experience or at least the peace building world is a fundamentally i would say different and even opposed process of communication because in dialogue if you're really sitting in a facilitated dialogue where you're sharing your personal stories and experiences of an issue or a problem and others are doing the same and you're not interrogating or challenging each other but you're listening oftentimes you discover new things Mm. right it is about learning and discovery it's about not only learning about them and their history and their background and the immense complexity of the issues that we're talking about and the fact that we don't really understand these issues very well, but also oftentimes when you're in a dialogue and you're sharing your stories, you start to connect the dots for yourself and learn things about yourself that you had forgotten or maybe didn't even realize. Yeah. So it's a very different kind of process, this mm. dialogue process, but and most people that refer to it are actually referring to debate and so Mm -hmm. part of what we've been trying to do is encourage a movement away from debate at least initially and moving into a dialogue process that allows a kind of human connection and a human understanding Mm -hmm. and a bit of rapport and perhaps even semblance of trust which uh, which establishes the conditions where you might be able to move into you know a political debate or a political conversation with a little less vitriol and over oversimplification. Yeah. Is, so, there, is there resistance yeah. to that ever, Peter, in the sense of that people might think, oh, this is just the soft side, you know, you're just trying to do contact theory on us. Um, I mean, I, I hear that you're saying that you know that actually this gives the possibility for a deep, deep disagreement, perhaps fruitful disagreement. But I'm curious as to whether some people would think that the early steps of that just feel a little bit like daisy chaining. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, there, you know, usually in a time like this, just think about political polarization in the U.S. right now, which is so acute and so intense or what's happening, you know, in terms of the political polarization here around what's happening with Israel and Gaza right now, which is immediate and extreme. 
Um, and so people have a lot of energy for the fight and for being right and on the right side and making your points. Um, <clears throat> there's not much energy for listening and learning about the other and about the nuance of the situation. So you're absolutely right. There's there's a, a lot of resistance to that. And I will say, I, I want to be very clear about this, dialogue to me as a process is a critical early process to establish conditions for other good work to happen. Mm. But in order for me, for that work to be sort of practically fruitful, oftentimes it requires time. It requires that people spend enough time together that they can move through dialogue, start to explore some of their differences, and ideally move together into action. I think mm -hmm. some of the best dialogue programs that I'm aware of, such as the group Hope in the Cities, which sprung up in Richmond, Virginia, which is, you know, the sort of birthplace of American slavery, <clears throat> they um, initially um, came up to address racial divisions. Now they work on other divisions. But their model is that you start with dialogue, stories, sharing and connecting with each other, to establish that as a foundation, you then move into a discussion of differences and issues that are concerned and have a more informed, you know, constructive conversation about that. And then ultimately, the community finds um, structures, institutions, you know, policies in their community that they together have some capacity to mobilize and address. Hmm. So they move from dialogue to debate to action. And to me, that is often a critical process if you're really going to see, you know, practical outcomes and effects of these dialogue groups. Let me just say, is it good to sit to some, with somebody else who's different, fundamentally different from you and hear them and learn from them? Yes. Hmm. And is that sufficient to changing our society? No. But it plants seeds of doubt. It, it breaks down our certainty of them and our certainty of our own groups. And so that that is an important piece of this, but for dialogues to have kind of longer term sustainable effects, I think they need to move past dialogue into debate and action. Yeah, um, I am aware that much of what you propose when it comes to the imagination of thinking about polarization these days is you you propose this idea of um, complexify to simplify. You know, often what we try to do is to think, OK, break it down for me. Give me the nuts and bolts of side A and side B. And yeah. you seem to be critical of that and say, actually, no, what we need is side A, B, C, D and E and see some of the really deep, painful complexities that require some study uh, across five different points of view rather than just the good side and the bad side. Yeah. Um, could you say a bit about the importance of that for you? And again, I'm curious as to whether there's tolerance for that in an age where there can be an enormous amount of rhetoric to say, this is the side that is suffering the most. No, this is the side that is suffering the most. Like, is there is there tolerance for, for a point of view like what you're proposing through the research, which is to say, um, let's spend time doing the difficult conversation? Uh, well, of course, during acute times of misery, stress, tension, conflict, um, people lose tolerance for that. This is a well-known psychological concept. When there are demands, stressors, threats on us as a human species, we oversimplify. Mm. We're to some degree hardwired to do that. You know, it is a sort of survival mechanism. You need to kind of quickly understand under, 
extreme conditions, who's on your side, who's not on your side and move in that direction, right? Yeah. So so we, we are to some degree hardwired to simplify or even oversimplify under certain conditions. But what our research has told us, so this is probably the main finding from our difficult conversations lab, which we've been doing for 20 years. I would say one of the main findings is that if we take a, a divide, a divisive issue, let's just say pro-life, pro-choice, uh, which people can become extremely passively divisive on and even, you know, sort of violent. Yeah. Um, if you take an issue like that, you bring people into the lab and you have a sense that these people are on different sides of that issue. And if you present them with what I would say a kind of pro-con po talking points, right? Mm -hmm. The pro-life would sort of suggest this, the pro-choice would sort of suggest this, and you present them with this kind of, you know, di dichotomous view, what people will do is they pay a lot of attention to the side of the argument that resonates for them, that's comforting. It's something called confirmation bias. It just, you know, it feels good and it makes sense to you. And you, you, it's hard to process the other side and you kind of ignore it or skip over it or deny it. And so if you present both sides of an issue to an individual before these conversations, they go in prepared for an argument and a debate because now they've kind of rehearsed their talking points. So it, it it leads to worse conversations, difficult conversations. People get stuck, enraged, and oftentimes the conversations have to end. If we take that same information, those talking points, and we don't present them as one side and the other side, but we say there are many dimensions to this issue of abortion and life and choice. Um, there are legal dimensions, there are uh, spiritual dimensions, there's sort of secrets and shame, there are, you know, family mores, cultural mores. If you take the same content and say, this is a complicated set of issues and present the con content to the dyad that way, they go into these conversations in fundamental, with fundamentally different views and feelings and actions in terms of how these conversations go. So it's not denying the content or avoiding the content, but it's presenting it in a way that's frankly more accurate to mm. the problem, which yeah. is that it's complicated and there are <laughs> dimensions here. And so when people enter those conversations, they're less uh, you know, pitted against the other side and oversimplifying. They're moving into the ambiguity and the complexity of the problem and that leads to very different kinds of conversations. Hmm. But again, I want to stress your point, was that, which is that under stressful conditions, we all, our capacity to do that is impaired, all yeah. of us. Yeah. It's, it's a very challenging thing to hold on to. But what the science tells us is that if we can do that, if we can do it proactively, if we can frame, and let me say a shout out to, there's a group called the National Issues Forum in this country, that does um, a great service, which is that they take a divisive issue. I imagine they're doing this right now around Gaza. They take a current divisive issue and they research it and say, what are the most important points of view on this? And then they put together, you know, kind of community-based um, information packets that's, you know, that say, this is a complex set of issues. And then they, sh you know, share those, they're on their website. Uh, and then they convene community groups where mm -hmm. to have those discussions, not informed by two sides, but informed by multiple dimensions. Mm -hmm. um, and again, those lead to very different kinds of conversations and reintroduce nuance 
into this oversimplification that we're so attracted to. Mm. I would like to talk to you about your conflict intelligence assessment, which you have up on a website. Um, it's, it, I took it the other day. I was curious to, to see oh, what good. it was like. And yeah. I'll tell you a little bit about Like I, I saw something back in myself that was, that was um, very, very helpful. Uh, I've thought about it probably every day since I took it. Um, mm. But like the, the assessment basically puts the person in 15 different scenarios and says, yeah. and, and in each scenario gives you five options. Am I right with five options? And yes. just asks, what would you do? Um, yeah. uh, could you talk a little bit about these? And, you know, you can talk about what the, what the five options are if you want to give the ending away. Yeah, uh, happy to. So I have to say, Padraig, I'm, I'm not surprised, but I'm very impressed that you've done your homework. <laughs> <laughs> and that you've, you've done it yourself to take it seriously, personally. Very important. Um, yeah, so this, this is a, a somewhat different project. We basically studied and elicited five kind of different types of situations that people find themselves in when they're navigating power differences and conflict, and then five strategies that actually work most effectively in those situations. Mm -hmm. So the assessment you took, which we call the conflict intelligence assessment, is a sort of exploration of you know of these five strategies which is your which ones are your go-to most of us because of our upbringing or our culture gender all of those things combined we're attracted to certain strategies and we would you know never consider other strategies mm -hmm. right but what we found in our research is that people that have more options available to them and are able able to basically ask themselves three questions we have an app for this, which I would, you know, encourage people to download. It's free. Hmm. Um, it's called the Making Conflict Work app. And basically what it does is it says, if, if you're about to go into a difficult conversation, ask yourself these three questions. One is, is this conflict important? Is it worth engaging? Is this relationship important? Do you need to do this or no? You know, can you hmm. just yeah. not to? A. B. What's the nature of your history of relationship with this person or these people? Is it generally cooperative and trustful and there's rapport? Is it the opposite, which is more undermining and contentious? Um, or is it some kind of mixed thing? Mm. And see who has more power here. Mm. And of course, that can mean authority, that can mean charisma, that can mean wealth or strength or, you know, but who essentially in this particular conflict has a leg up? Um, are you in high power, low power, or kind of, you know, combined yeah. some peers? And those, the answers to those three questions then put you in one of these five situations. Mm. And what the app says is, okay, well, this is the situation you found yourself in. This is the strategy we found to be most fitting and effective in those situations. Mm. So it, it's, it's in that way, it's, again, this is 15 years of research that we've oversimplified in, you know, three questions in an app. But it is the idea that if you can read these differences in situations, make an assessment of the kind of situation you're in, and then respond in ways that tend to fit in that situation, that people, uh, you know, what we found is people feel better with conflict, better with their peers, less emotional stress, less intention to quit their job. You know, it's, it's, it's good. It's good to have options. Yeah. It's yeah. fine. And that's yeah. what this assessment offers. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, uh, people have found particularly useful. Yeah. Hmm. Um, when I took it, I was, um, you know, it kind of gave me some feedback based as to, 
yeah. you know, what, what I'd entered in and gave me some feedback. But one of the critical pieces of feedback he gave me was to say, um, it seems like you struggle to change tactic of response to conflict halfway through conflict. Mm. Um, and I thought that was um, annoyingly accurate. <laughs> so yeah. It might have yeah. sworn at the computer a little bit. <laughs> how, how dare you? Dare it be. Yeah. I, I mean, in a certain sense, I found myself thinking, am I sometimes in the middle of some small or some large conflict, just yeah. basically doing the equivalent of saying the same thing louder and slower rather than thinking, <laughs> oh, it's not working. I need to right. I need to try something different. Yeah, which we, which most of us do. I mean, this we've done. Research I need to this. say, Peter. <laughs> yeah, well, it's true. I mean, again, what the data says. We've studied this in China. We studied this in South Korea. We studied it in the U.S. Uh, over uh, about fifteen years now, and the patterns are that about two thirds of the time, most of us take uh, uh, choose strategies that are adaptive, well, mm -hmm. that work, that fit, but about a third of the time, we don't. And that can be that we're not comfortable with certain strategies. You know, there is one strategy of the five that we call appeasement, mm. which is basically you're in a situation where you're in low power, you have a kind of competitive or difficult relationship with the, the person with more power, but you need to stick in it. You need the yeah. job, you need the relationship, you need to, you know, learn something, you, you, you can't leave it. Yeah. And so you have to kind of suck it up for a period of time and tolerate it and maybe look for a way to exit or change the relationship but you know it's a hard one yeah. and what's interesting is you know of course most americans hate that option <laughs> rarely choose it but in other places particularly in south korea it's a very common strategy mm. right it's recognized as culturally appropriate and useful and effective so again it, this is just about it is to some degree about you mm. but it is interesting what you're suggesting because what you're suggesting is that you may be in a situation, you may assess it, you may be responding in a way that you're comfortable with, but the situation might change. Mm. Person may change, you may say something that triggers them, and then you're kind of in a different space. And then the question is, can you sense that and can you make an adjustment, right? Yeah. Can you make an adjustment into, in, of, of, and that's this thing we call adaptivity, which is really yeah. just reading how the situation has changed and responding in kind yeah and that's that's you know an advanced thing not all of us are great at it but um but if you're if you ex if you expand your repertoire about a third of your life will get better yeah <laughs> you're listening to the carmela podcast and with me today is dr peter coleman talking about conflict and peace and my name is Padre Gotuma, and i have to expand my options apparently <laughs> <laughs> Peter, I'd like to talk to you um, about the polarization detox challenge. Yeah. I, I think we've already been kind of talking around some of the dynamics of this, but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Sure. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, the, the stir behind this is, again, so I've been studying what we call, in, you know, seemingly intractable long-term entrenched conflicts for 25 years. And about five or six years ago, as in, in this country, as the political rhetoric became more and more vitriolic, hostile, intolerant, and extreme, um, I became worried that we are on a trajectory towards intractability. I started to look at the data. And in fact, in this country, political polarization, you know, red and blue America <clears throat> has gotten more and more tense 
and escalating um, at an increasing rate since the late 1970s. Hmm. And so you see evidence of this in Washington, D.C., in terms of, you know, the lack of bipartisanship and more obstructionism. But you also see it in the attitudes and feelings of people, you know, the public. Hmm. Um, and, you know, the Pew Research Trust tracks this carefully. Um, and so there are all kinds of uh, consequences of this, one of which is, at least half of America today is feels estranged from someone in their family or close friend group because of political differences. So it it, it contributes to our sense of alienation from one another and our loneliness and other mm -hmm. kinds of pathologies. Um, but it also just, as we can see, it impairs our capacity as a society to solve problems. So it's it's a it's a what I call first order problem. Our political polarization here today impairs our capacity to solve other problems that we agree on. You know, 90% mm -hmm. of Americans think that there should be background checks before you sell a gun. 90%. 90%. Not, my God. Yeah, yeah. There's tremendous agreement on that, <laughs> on that specific policy. And yet you can't move the needle on that. And part of that is, again, the sort of acute um, partisanship that happens and, the, you know, there's other problems as well. Obviously, there's a lot of money behind that policy uh, or the, the, the lack of regulation. Um, but nevertheless, we're, it, it's a polarization is a first order problem because it it impairs our capacity to solve crises, other crises that are coming our way. And so and I, I will also say that political violence in this country is been on the rise. And there are good historians like John Meacham and Doris Kearns Goodwin, who have studied the American history, who really see strong parallels between today and the 1850s in the U.S., where we had a horrible civil war. Um, and political scientists like Barbara Walter, who is a CIA analyst and tracks instability around the world, and they've been applying their algorithm to the U.S., and they really believe, you know, this. Uh, she put a book out a year ago called um, How Civil Wars Start. Mm -hmm and documents that what is happening here is that we're on a trajectory towards civil war and that civil war won't look like, you know, what it, uh, like the 1850s with yeah. muskets and uniforms, but it will be armed militant groups taking out power substations, destabilizing communities to build, you know, outrage mm. and chaos. Um, and we're seeing that yeah. we're seeing strong evidence of that in communities. So, mm. Concern is acute. I pivoted to focus specifically on polarization because of this. And but I, I was concerned that a lot of good intentioned organizations that do bridge building were basing it basing their approach on uh, a model you've referred to called contact theory or the contact hypothesis. This came out of the 1950s. Somebody named Gordon Allport applied it to race relations in this country and ethnic relations. Um, and it is the idea that if you have large groups of people that have no contact with each other, bringing them together in conversation to humanize each other is good. Yeah. And the vast majority of time, that's the case. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a it, it's a very powerful thing. But what Allport realized and subsequent research has told us is under certain conditions. Mm -hmm. And I did feel like part of what was happening in well-intentioned groups bringing red and blue Americans together is they didn't understand the conditions where it works and the conditions where it backfires. And if you 
look at Pew Research, what they find is that the vast majority of Republicans and Democrats that sit down with the other side today leave feeling more alienated and more frustrated mm -hmm. and more agitated because it's not just contact. It's contact where you have enough time with one another, which means it's not just a sit down for an hour, but it's some kind of ongoing communication that you have. Mm. It's contact where you share some kind of common goal. Oftentimes, these kinds of processes need good facilitation because if you have someone that lives in the you know MSNBC uh, liberal media world, or you have someone that lives in the Breitbart you know right wing mm. media world. They have completely different sources of information and fact patterns. Mm. So there's almost a psychosis in our community. And so you'll say something and I'll think that's ridiculous, mm. right? Um, and they the same. And so just encouraging people to get together and have a cup of coffee is unethical under these conditions. So long-winded response to say, I wrote the way out because there is good science. Mm. We've studied societies that were deeply divided, either in a civil war or on the precipice, and stopped and pivoted and chose a different trajectory. And what I do in the book is just kind of pick five principles from that research that are practices that you can do in your own life, but that scale up to your relationships and to your workplace and your community and even at the international level and policy level. Um, but these five principles can help us find the way out. I mean, the good news is what we learn from the study of deeply divided societies is that most of them change in times like these. Yeah. Most, well, right, so times like these mean we're coming out of COVID. There's uh, uh, an extreme awareness of racial injustice. There's been a huge economic downturn for a lot of the population. There's a lot of pain and suffering and resentment and confusion. We're a, we're a destabilized society. And what we found from the study of other societies, this is a theory out of biology called punctuated equilibrium, which is that when things really get rocked, mm. um, it can lead to people really reconsidering their life and their choices and their values and who they're talking to. It can lead to that if, and this is the important if, they have some sense of the alternative. Hmm. How do you change your patterns? What, what, what do I do to move in a different direction? And that's why I wrote The Way Out. It's actually a concept from ripeness theory, which says if you have enough miserable people <laughs> in a society that really want to stop, you have to provide them with a sense of the way out and yeah. what that is and what that looks like practically. And so, and, and that, so I wrote this book to do that. I lay out it. I provide some stories in the book about, you know, examples of it in personal life and then, in, in, you know, sort of the macro level policy level, but it's a book and nobody reads yeah. books anymore. I mean, <laughs> if you read books, you know, there's probably a handful of folks listening, but about a year ago, it really struck me and my students and my daughter, Hannah and I, that this is not something that's going to stick because it's not it's it's too hard for people to read a book or hear ideas or hear a podcast and change their life. So we we created what we call a challenge, uh, which is really just something that you could sign up for. In fact, the 2.0 version of this goes up today. Oh, amazing. <laughs> it, goes, it goes up on a website that's uh, been funded by a group called Starts With Us, which is a nonprofit that's 
trying to depolarize the world. And uh, this version, if you go into it, sign up for it, it will send you, you know, a text or email every day. It's a four-week challenge. Mm-hmm. It's something we inc- strongly encourage you to do with others, with a friend, with a sibling, with a, you know, someone that you work with, someone that you feel that you could comfortably do this with, because it's a four-week experience. Every workday, so five days a week, we send you a text or an email or both that says, okay, here's here's a couple of options for today. And we basically have taken these five principles and translated them into, you know, a five-minute thing you could do right now. Yeah. And so in some ways, these are it's like a it's like um like a mindfulness ex- exercise or a, it's an exercise. Yeah, I was gonna say a muscle building exercise. <laughs> it's muscle building, yeah. it is, but it the first week is about you and you reflecting on your tendencies, inclination, habits, you know, so Patrick sounds like you've already started that work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just last week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first week is is about you. The second week then pivots importantly to not the other group, but your own group. Uh. As part of what we found with these polarizing tendencies is that our own groups have gotten tighter and tighter and unwilling to basically disagree within our groups. We mm-hmm. don't, we're not honest about our own ambivalence about issues. And so the question for the second week is how do you maybe carefully introduce more nuance and tolerance into the conversation in on your own side? Yeah. The third week is finding ways and places to reach out across the divide and you know, to people that maybe you've become alienated from and, you know, do that more effectively. And then the fourth week is finding these groups and organizations that are across this country and across the world, like Corey Mila, that do good work at bringing people together across a divide and engaging them in practical actions in their community to change the community, you know, to change incentives or policies or regulations in the community that might help decrease the tendency towards polarization. Mm -hmm. So it is this four week thing. Uh, Again, it's as little as five minutes a day. It's best if you do it with other people, because I have found I've done it a couple of times now, and we've done it in groups. And at the end of each week, it's very important to be able to complain (laughs) I did this stupid thing and it really aggravated me, but you know what? It was worth it. Mm. And those kinds of conversations are helpful to have, to reinforce learnings, to hear what other people have learned and other struggles they've had. Um, So this is just going, you know, again, the the second version of this is it's been up for a year. This is a, a streamlined, cleaner version. The tech is better. So we point people to it because it's not a training. It's not a one-time encounter with another group. It's a set of things that take time, but that encourage and recognize the complexity of this problem and the different layers to this problem. It's not mm-hmm. just me. It's not just you and I and our relationship, but it's also our in-group. And how do we start to you know, complexify our understanding of the out-group and who they are and what they are, and, and then ultimately, ideally, move into some kind of action? Yeah. I was so struck by, you know, what you said in your early childhood, that there was a time of chaos in personal family life as well as civic life um, and and time also of protest and action and movement for change. And it seems like 
um, those, the recognition of chaos and uh, a dedication to action, uh, both of those things really do have, do seem to have informed your life. Peter Coleman, thank you very much for coming on the Cory Miller podcast. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. The Way Out by Peter Coleman was published by Columbia University Press in 2021. And The Way Out also has a dedicated website where you can find additional exercises and resources. There's a link to that in the show notes. And we'll include a link to the website of the Polarization Detox Challenge also in our show notes. The Corimela podcast is created in partnership between Corimela and Fanfan. It's produced by Emily Rowling with mixing, editing and theme music by Fra Sands at Safe Place Studios and presented by me, Padrigo Tuma. The podcast is generously funded by the Henry Luce Foundation and the Community Relations Council Northern Ireland and the Irish Government's Reconciliation Fund. Thanks to them and thanks to Corimela's friends and supporters and thanks to you for listening. For our very short story questions, Peter, um, what's something important that you've changed your mind about? Uh, the U.S. military. Hmm. I, I have to say, I, I about 15 years ago started to teach West Point mid-career captains, and in doing so, they were sort of recruiting us. And I, raised as a very progressive leftist, was very suspicious of West Point and the military in general. Military academy, yeah. Yeah, just believe that it was going to be a place of dogmatism and certainty. And I, I was sh shocked and surprised at what I found, which was thoughtful people struggling with important issues. And so it really did affect my view of them. It, it significantly changed my mind. Could you tell us about a time when you felt foreign, Peter? Um, yeah, I think, um, <laughs> well... I had a close friend for years who passed away a while ago named James Williams, who uh, was an African-American man, and he was older than me by about 10 or so years, and he taught me a lot of, of training in conflict resolution. I traveled with him quite a bit, um, and, uh, you know, so I, I became close friends with him and his children and his family and would, would be in these um, uh, spaces in America that were all black except me. And that was a, also a very critical, important experience for me. In fact, I happened to be traveling with James the day that the O.J. Simpson verdict broke. And we had a dinner that night that I'll never forget mm -hmm. because he schooled me <laughs> on the different levels of that decision in terms of not just, you know, the guilt or innocence of this man, but of the justice system as a whole. So yes, so I, I I have I I certainly felt foreign, but always welcomed in these communities that James invited me into. And are there works of art that you've turned to again and again? You know, it might be a book or a poem or music or anything. Well, I think the poetry of someone you may know uh, named Padre Fortuna. <laughs> we're we're going to edit this one out. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I just have to say, you know, I, 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 you know, I was being joking to some degree, but um, Padraig, your capacity to translate poetry, poetry has never been something I've had much of a portal into. Um, I appreciate it to some degree, but your capacity to translate it for those of us that are not familiar and not embedded uh, is really profound and moving. And so I, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I started it as a joke, but I mean it. 
That's very kind. Thanks, Peter. I thought you were going to talk about the Beatles, in which case we'd have been here for another hour. I know that about you. Well. Yeah, I'm going to shut up. Shut up.